Hello and welcome to the Future of Tax podcast series, Private Enterprise Edition. In part one of this two-part episode, we're joined by our host, Mike Linter, Global Head of Private Enterprise Tax, Global Tax and Legal, KPMG International, as well as Shai Manukan, Policy Lead for KPMG's Private Enterprise Tax Network at KPMG in Canada, John Reaver, Head of Tax for the KPMG Islands Group, and Greg Lim, Global Head of Family Office and Private Client at KPMG International. Together, they'll unpack some of the potential impacts of the global minimum tax on private companies and family offices. Mike, without further ado, over to you. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to host today's episode that will uncover some of the issues related to the 15% global minimum tax and how it may impact privately owned companies and family offices. This conversation may come as a surprise to many private companies because the focus so far has been on multinational public companies and what they need to do to get ready. So today we're shifting our attention to private companies and family offices and how BEPS Pillar 2 may have an impact on them. John, I'd like to start with you to set the scene for us. How is the minimum tax playing out in various regions across the world? Yeah, before I actually get into see what's actually happening around the world, can I just say something? Sort of, uh, no one, absolutely no one expected BEPS to become what it seems to be growing into. The whole initiative started around 10 years ago. And yes, sort of, uh, the major aim of BEPS was to dramatically change the corporate landscape. But I can assure you, sort of, at the time the BEPS initiative launched, no one expected to have accepted sort of a, a minimum tax rate. This whole idea of a global minimum tax rate has been pushed by the OECD. And the OECD is what, sort of a 38 jurisdictions, mainly sort of large high tax jurisdictions. But pillar two has been agreed not solely by the OECD, but by the inclusive framework. And the inclusive framework is 140 jurisdictions, and they include sort of um, the smaller countries and also the countries that I look after, those no nominal sort of jurisdictions that offer tax neutrality. Now, you'd imagine that these countries would just sit in the corner and perhaps let bets happen to them. But that's not the case, Mike. What's been happening over the last couple of months is that these tax sort of uh, neutral jurisdictions have actually made announcements that they too will embrace Pillar 2 and actually introduce some form of domestic top-up tax. And these countries include Jersey, Guernsey, Isle of Man, Bahamas, Bermuda, Barbados, Hong Kong, UAE and Mauritius. So you know, those are the fundamental jurisdictions that sort of accommodate tax neutrality. And I guess you can see why they've actually decided to do that. Because the whole idea of Pillar 2 is that if you have an in-scope group, it needs to pay tax at 15% in all the jurisdictions in which it operates. So if it's operating in a tax-neutral jurisdiction, you know those profits are going to be subject to tax at 15%. So those tax-neutral jurisdictions have been thinking, well, if these profits which are generated in my jurisdiction are going to be paying tax, 
we might as well sort of grab a tax ourselves. And that's why the tax sort of uh, neutral jurisdictions have decided to embrace bets. Now, I say sort of the most tax neutral jurisdictions. There is one that has made a public announcement that it won't do anything in relation to a pillar two, and that's Cayman. Its financial service minister actually said that it doesn't need to, and it has no intention of changing its tax system. Now, that doesn't mean that the profits arising in, in Cayman will not be subject to pillar two. If the company which is generating those profits are part of a in-scope group, then those profits will be paying tax at 15%, but not in Cayman. So it's interesting to see that even the tax-neutral jurisdictions are, are embracing BEPS. But timing is an interesting one, because remember, so a pillar two isn't a minimum standard. And that means that the 140 jurisdictions that agreed to pillar two don't have to implement pillar two. But if they do, then they need to actually take a common approach. So the OECD expected that pillar two would happen in 2024. And I've got to say, so that a number of onshore jurisdictions has decided to actually do that or made announcements that they will implement PETS Pillar 2 in, in 2024. There's the EU directive, so all the 27 EU jurisdictions. Then you've got the UK, then you've got Canada, sort of South Korea, Australia, Switzerland. So there's a number of jurisdictions, more of the larger jurisdictions, will implement Pillar 2. But then you had this announcement around six months ago from Singapore. And that was a bit of a game changer because they said that, yes, they'll implement Pillar 2, but not in 2024. They'll do it in 2025. And that kind of gave authority to the smaller jurisdictions, the, the no and nominal tax jurisdictions to say, hang on, Yes, we want to embrace sort of, uh, Pillar 2, but we don't have to go along with what the bigger sort of players are doing. And we can wait until 2025. So a number of those jurisdictions kind of adopted the same language as the Singapore announcement. So I guess like, it's quite a confused landscape. But one thing is for sure, well, in my mind at least, is that pillar two will definitely happen. Thank you, John. That's a great overview. Shai, it's just really interesting seeing from a tax policy point of view, what might impact private companies and family offices, given the landscape that John has just described? Thank you, Mike. Well, first, we need to bust a couple of myths associated with pillar two. First, you know, people think about digital economy, but pillar two and the global rules that are supposed to implement pillar two are not limited to the digital economy. They are across the industries and sectors. They apply to family office. They apply to private enterprise. You don't have to be in the digital economy there to be covered by pillar two. The overall attention was obviously to make sure that all types of multinational enterprises pay minimum tax on their worldwide income. The second myth that we need to watch is basically that the growth rules are limited to large multinational groups. The threshold is actually 750 million euros of gross revenue, which is not that high. It means that while many family offices and private businesses will be still outside the scope of these rules, others that don't think themselves as large multinationals or publicly traded companies are within the rules. 
which is potentially applicable not only to private enterprise, but potentially to uh, trust and family trust and um, large family structures. So these rules, as we said, have applying the minimum tax to consolidated group. So basically, the, the main question to ask is, what is the consolidated group? And that will become a question of great importance because that would define whether a certain structure is subject to the rules or not and how. Uh, the first step is basically to identify the consolidated group. For this, we need to identify the ultimate parent entity and then to identify its consolidated group. A trust, for example, theoretically, can be an ultimate parent entity. Hence, depending on the application of the consolidated group rules, and in particular, the deemed consolidated group rule, it is possible that the consolidated group would be headed by the family trust and not by the parent of the company that runs the family business, which may change significantly the application of the minimum tax on this structure. Similarly, uh, it's possible that the family trust that owns a majority interest in several family businesses is found to be the ultimate parent entity of the group, thus consolidating under it several businesses, which when taken separately would not be subject to the rule but when taken as combined, are subject to the rules because they exceed in total 750 million of gross uh, revenue on an annual basis. There's still a lack of clarity at the moment on the application and definition of what is a consolidated group and how to apply it to trust uh, when the trust is the ultimate parent entity. We hope to see more clarification from either the OECD or individual jurisdictions as they implement it. With John's comment earlier of some jurisdiction postponing intentionally their application of the rule to 2025, this period might take more time and we we'll ha might have some situations with some jurisdictions already implemented the rules and others did not or are intending to do it later. It will be something that we'll need to, to, to follow up and see how it evolves. Moreover, as also noted by John, we have 140 jurisdictions that signed the pillar two document. The trick is that unlike the pillar one or the BAPS recommendation, the original BAPS recommendations that are intended to be implemented through a multilateral treaty, here each jurisdiction has to implement it in its domestic law, which means a process domestically. Some jurisdiction may make it very fast, some like the US may end up in a deadlock. So it will be very interesting to see how this evolves. We might be in a situation where by January 1st, 2024, we are not going to have all jurisdictions implementing the rules. More specifically for family offices and family businesses structures, the family holding entity, whether corporation or trust, is in many cases resident in low tax jurisdiction. And if we have a situation where they postpone the implementation, we might have a changing landscape through 2024 and 2025 because of the gap in implementation by the various jurisdictions. And we will need also to monitor that, not only to define what is the consolidated group, but also to define the potential tax and reporting liability. Thank you, Shay. And, and Greg, is there anything you'd like to add uh, specifically from a family office point of view? Yeah, thanks, Mike. Um, I think one thing I would say is, and it's a key point here, is to reiterate a point that's been made by Shai 
just then. And that's the, the impact of BEPS and Pillar 2 is having on structures that many family offices and ultra high net wealth individuals have that sit above the business. And these often provide a coverage for the wider family wealth and also often house the non, you know, what many will see as the non-business assets. And I'm talking here about things like personal investments that the family may hold, investment properties, that type of thing. And many people who are familiar with tax will know that these types of structures don't often fit into the normal category that people look at when they're looking at things on a day-to-day basis from a tax perspective. You know, often talking here about structures like trusts or foundations or personal and family holding companies. And these types of structures from a tax perspective often have different tax treatments and often have a different tax treatment when you look at them in one jurisdiction versus how you look at it in another jurisdiction. And this just leads to confusion. This confusion and and the whole confusion and the whole learning curve that everybody's going on with BEPS and Pillar 2 means that many family offices and ultra high net wealth families are having to look closely and perhaps very quickly as these rules are forming around them to see what the impact is going to be and if they should be taking action now and certainly ahead of the advent of BEPS taking place from next year to actually try and protect and preserve their position at best or even just understand what it's going to mean for them. And John, to add to what Greg and Shai have just outlined, how do you see some of these tax policies playing out in the different regions? Well, I do think sort of Pillar 2 is a real game changer, especially in the, the zero and uh, nominal tax jurisdictions. You know, as I said, sort of, uh, you know, if we, we put aside sort of the Cayman, most of the uh, no and nominal tax jurisdictions will introduce sort of some form of domestic top-up tax. So what was previously absolutely unthinkable, that these jurisdictions were going to start to introduce some t- tax, now it's become a reality. You know, and we've seen sort of over the cu- last couple of months, you had the UAE introducing a 9% tax rate. Now, I completely accept that they've got a number of uh, free trade zones which provide sort of a tax neutrality. But nonetheless, the UAE is now no longer a no and nominal tax jurisdiction. Even Bahamas, Bahamas has always been sort of uh, pride itself of not having any tax. They issued a green paper sort of in May time, providing various options on taxation, one including a wide range of corporate tax regime. And Bermuda, Bermuda sort of uh, historically no tax at all. They've made an announcement that they will introduce some form of uh, uh, top-up tax. And remember, sort of Bermuda is the is the jurisdiction that has issued sort of around eight thousand sort of companies with a letter stating that they will never introduce any form of tax until sort of about two thousand and thirty-five at the earliest. So. The whole landscape has completely changed because of of Pillar 2. And what was previously unthinkable is now sort of starting to become a reality that these jurisdictions are starting to think about introducing taxation. Thanks, John. And Shai, is there anything else in the policy landscape that the leaders of private companies need to be aware of and thinking about? It's important to point out that to what we've been talking about, a very short time frame, which John mentioned earlier, and possible spillover to 2025 by some jurisdictions. We're recording now at the end of July 2023. We've just passed the mid-year point, and Pillar 2 is supposed to be effective in 2024, January 2024, at least some of the jurisdictions. So if you're a family business or a family office, 
and potentially within the rules, don't have the infrastructure in place to collect the information that's going to be required from the various jurisdictions for your reporting to analyze it, to compile it, and to make sure that you can comply with the rules at the end of the year, you need to start working on it now. And as Greg mentioned earlier, you might need also to revisit and rethink your structure because of the impact of Pillar 2. Now, it's one, to create the infrastructure, but it's also you need to educate people from other areas of business, such as accounting, on what the globe rules have for them. Because as we know, globe rules have a very strong reference to accounting rules. You'll need to bring the tax person, you'll need to bring non-tax people into the picture and explain to them what is happening on the side on the tax side. You'll need to bring technical people who deal with infrastructure and help them help you design the infrastructure that will allow you to collect the information that is required for you to make the analysis. Now, this is not just a compliance issue. Many people look at it and think that we're dealing with a compliance. We need to compile all the information and report it to the required jurisdiction. This is a planning issue. Entities, family offices need to look at their structure and consider whether they are happy with it in light of the potential changes, whether they want to do any changes in the structure to make sure that it's as efficient as they envisioned it in before Pillar 2, and whether they're happy with the information that the compliance exercise will eventually provide in the reporting because they are going to disclose a lot more information than they disclosed so far. And as a result, there are likely to be more audits and more questions from various tax authorities. And businesses and family office alike need to look into that and understand what is the information that they are going to provide and how to deal with the information upfront. And as I said, the first and most important step is to work and build the internal infrastructure that would allow family offices and family businesses to collect the information, then determine if they're happy with the information, if they need to dig deeper and get better level and quality of information, and how to design this infrastructure to support them when the rules would apply. As the rules are implemented independently by each jurisdiction, we have a risk of inconsistency among jurisdictions in their implementation of the rules into domestic law, because we need to remember that while the rules are following a model, each country, each jurisdiction has its own private and public law that interacts with this rule within that jurisdiction, which might mean different interpretation, which for our clients means you need to be proactive, you need to be able to review the implementation and the interpretation in the various jurisdictions, and you need to be agile enough to change as implementation happens throughout jurisdictions and to do it quickly. 
great. Thanks, Shy, Mike, John and Greg. And that brings us to the end of part one in this two-part podcast episode on the potential impact of the global minimum tax on private companies and family offices. Be sure to check out part two, where we'll dive into the opportunities in the space and what's in store next. Thank you all for listening and please join us again next time and email us with any questions you have about today's episode at tax at kpmg.com. We'd also love to hear from you with any suggestions you have for future episodes. Thanks for listening.